You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Today, we've got a special treat for you. A while back, I convened a meeting of the minds over Facebook Live to talk about the future of ranching. You, our listeners, piped in with questions. And we had a productive and insightful conversation on stuff like how to raise animals humanely in a time of climate change and the pros and cons of virtual fencing. That's when you put a GPS collar on livestock to keep them herded together and take down fences so wildlife can migrate through. We brought together holistic ranchers and writers and academics. I recorded the whole thing. And now we're bringing you the highlights in this very special bonus episode. Sit back and enjoy. First, I'd like to introduce our guests, starting with Judith Schwartz, the author of several books of nonfiction exploring the intersection of science and culture with a very clear-eyed focus on solutions. Her books include Cows Can Save the Planet and Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World, and she lives in Vermont. Also joining us is Leo Bartholmus. And he is the president of the Ranchers Stewardship Alliance, which is just this way cool organization. It's a rancher-led conservation organization that represents a big group of multi-generational ranch families who run livestock over millions of acres of grasslands in Phillips County, Montana. Temple Grandin, y'all probably know quite well from the film and books about her life. She's renowned for very good reason. Her work has transformed how we manage livestock, making our meat industry more humane and transparent. She's written numerous books and dozens of scientific papers. She's also a vocal advocate for children and adults with autism. She's a professor of animal science at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. And Bridger Rairdon, He's a regenerative rancher who grew up on a sheep ranch just right here outside of Laramie, Wyoming. Uh, He's recently completed the Kivera Coalition's apprenticeship program, um, which taught him a lot about ranching and how to how it can improve our land and our water quality. Um, And he runs his ranch with his dad, Tom Reardon. So thanks so much to all of you. 
I wonder if you guys, that, that's a really good way of kind of launching into a discussion about the definition of, of regenerative ranching, or also it's sometimes called holistic ranching. I wonder if you guys might be able to kind of collaborate on a definition just for folks who maybe aren't familiar with this kind of growing movement. So I started studying holistic range management back in the 80s and the ranches, you know, drifted toward more and more implementation of that. And the biggest switch in my mind occurred when I thought started thinking of cattle as a tool to improve our grazing resources. And now we're improving soil health. And, you know, that's my basic definition that, you know, grazing and fire and innovation are just tools to improve the soil and the grazing. And that's, that's what guides our ranch management. Um, I, can, I can add to that. And that is that holistic grazing mimics the herbivore and predator relationship as had been in, in nature. So basically the way I think about it is that in nature, plants are managed by plant eating animals and plant eating animals are managed by predators. And because of what we as humans have, how we have impacted the landscape, we have roads, we have cities, we have parking lots, et cetera, et cetera. So, and we have also killed many predators that that relationship is not in balance. And so humans can step in and kind of act as predators in keeping grazing animals on the move. Well, maybe I'll make a comment. The more I learned about it, I have been out into grazing lands in every part of the US in my 50 year career. Also all over South America, China, Europe, many, many other places and been out on ranches where they really cared about the land. And I've seen what good ranchers can do to regenerate land and improve it. Yeah. And now, one of the things that we've really explored in this last season of the podcast was this idea, you know, that we've had in our minds of, of ranchers and cowboys as sort of these rugged individuals. But um, I, I wanted to you know, pass it on to you, Bridger, and you, Leo, because you're both have been participating in these really amazing collaborations um, in which we're really seeing ranchers come together and work towards a goal and are really highlighting and, and focusing on conservation. Leo, do you mind starting just telling us a little bit about the Ranchers Stewardship Alliance? The area that I live in, 200 miles west of North Dakota, turns out to be it's one of the last remaining intact grasslands in the world. And there was a lot of conservation study in the area and the ranchers were totally unaware of this. And the Nature Conservancy bought a large ranch in the area to preserve the grasslands. And uh, out of that relationship that developed fairly positively through a drought, uh, the Rancher Stewardship Alliance was started. And five years ago, there's a young woman came to us and said, I can get a grant for you guys to help the community with fencing and water and grass seedings. And, and since then, that's what we do. We've created this conservation committee within the Rancher Stewardship Alliance. And there's multiple parties. Some are ranchers, but um, the Nature Conservancy, World Wildlife Fund, U.S. Fish Wildlife Service, the BLM, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks in Montana. And so we've formed this committee to 
review projects and everybody in the committee brings projects to lift the three county area and areas around us with these projects that help support improved grazing management. Uh, turns out the area is the home of the nesting habitat for 12 threatened birds. So, you know, we all recognize we all need the same things and we're finding ways to do that. The Kavira Coalition is, is really kind of a, a catalyst to create a network of peers within a younger generation of um, you know, people involved in agriculture. And I agree with Leo that, you know, the, the collaboration within agencies, nonprofits, you know, going out and, and helping, you know, a tri-state county area or just a county area, that those localized regions is really important. My focus has kind of been trying to create collaboration with uh, individuals within ranching and trying to help marketing. I, I know a lot of people aren't in ranching to be a beef marketer necessarily. And, you know, I think in today's age with where our conventional commodity market is, uh, you know, we have to, we have to go out and, and do a lot more work and a lot more collaboration as individual ranchers or ranches um, to really, I think, push the dial in both land management and, and just a quality of life for ranchers. Um, but the Kavira Coalition has been a great catalyst, I think, for me um, coming up to, to help build that network. Yeah. You know, I, it seems like the regenerative ranching movement, the holistic ranching movement is kind of coming about at a really interesting time when we're having you know, the ranching industry is having more and more challenges. The West is just getting hotter. Uh, droughts, you know, they're calling it a mega drought now. And I just am wondering what you guys are seeing maybe are some of the biggest challenges for ranchers. And Temple, I, I thought I would start with you because I think that there's really especially some challenges for animal welfare uh, due to um, these rising temperatures and drought. Well, some of the big problems I'm seeing is i uh, well, uh, with hot temperatures, Black Angus cattle get hotter. Um, I just have talked to a number of ranchers. We had a big um, BQA field day out in Burlington, Colorado. Talked to a whole bunch of ranchers out there. And the problem we've got with some of these animals bred for meat is that the sister for that huge steer out in a feed yard is too big to feed on, on uh, these ranches and, if, and they feed them hay and stuff in the wintertime. And I noticed when I during my drive during that hundred mile stretch where it was just grazing, I saw a lot of red Angus there and they're buying the red Angus because they're smaller. And recently I told a guy who was on the board of the Angus Association, they gotta do something about cow size. You see, you just breed something for maximum meat uh, that doesn't work out on these ranches. I mean, I, I spent the first 10 years of my life in Arizona. We had a lot of Hereford cattle. She'd give you a calf every year, a little one, but she'd give you one every year. And I think we've got to worry about heat stress in some of these large black cattle. Going off of kind of what Temple said about, you know, having an optimal cow, I, I think that translates actually to act, having uh, optimal grazing. And what I mean by that is like, I'm up in uh, Northern New Mexico right now, managing a grazing lease for a ranch uh, based in Colorado. And we're having a phenomenal rain year. It's, it's been great which is surprising. That's, that's not what you normally expect. And I think like that optimal management within grazing is, okay, you're going to get all this rain. You're going to get this moisture. It might come in a, you know, larger amounts in a quicker period. It might be um, more sporadic over seasons and years or even years in general. And so you need to 
managed so that potentially in these more arid environments, you always have some sort of drought strategy, some sort of way to continue the ranch to be economically viable and to manage your rangeland in a way that isn't destructive, but actually allows for, uh, you know, recovery and that, that regeneration that you know, we all are striving for. Really echoing what others said that what people are doing is reducing their herds. And, you know, another way to articulate what Bridger said is making use of every bit of rain that falls. So Alan Savory, who I've spent a lot of time with and written a lot about is he always talked about effective rainfall because you may get a lot of rain, but if you don't keep it on the land, then, you know, you might well have not received that rain. So I attended the new cowgirl camp. They also have a new rancher camp in Eastern Washington state. And I remember quite vividly the importance of making your grazing plan in pencil. Mm -hmm. And then after, so you can always adjust because circumstances are always changing. And so if you've planned for drought, you may get rain and then that change. So, so, so adaptability, not being overly tied to a particular plan. What are some of the most interesting and innovative methods that you're seeing that ranchers are trying really cool things that maybe people are, are starting to do to really help steward our Western landscapes? Leo, I definitely want to ask you about virtual fencing, because that's one of the things that I think is really interesting. Can you tell me about that? Yes, I, I can. Thank you. We were the cold weather experiment, I think, because typically their pilot programs had been in California and southern portions of the country. We thought it was a great opportunity for the ranch to intensify the management and increase the rest periods. We're also in the middle of the second longest mammal migration in North America. The antelope come through the ranch in the immediate area in a 300 mile migration from Southern Canada. So it's in, the public land and conservation groups are, are all about not putting more infrastructure out on the rangeland. And, and so they were very supportive of this pilot project. And, and, and we're having good success. You, you know, I keep telling myself it's an emerging technology. It's not gonna be 100% successful, but Last year, I built 50 miles of virtual fence to manage the grazing and the changing water resources because of the drought. We're having water issues on the ranch, and it's a very positive thing, and I'm hoping that it's successful in the future. I just want to ask you a question, Leo. One thing I've learned, it's very important when you introduce a new technology to make sure early adopters don't fail, and I want virtual fencing to work. And from your knowledge of this, do you have any tips on things to not do with it that could make it fail? Because we've got to make the early adopters work. So maybe you could give some warnings or some tips to help people make it successful. Well, yeah, I think it's a, a lot about a mindset, Temple, because you, you have these hard barriers, whether they're barbed wire or electric fence, and you have expectations of 100% compliance. That's not going to happen. I mean, you're still gonna, you're gonna have 95% compliance when the batteries are fresh and, 
and you're going to have outliers that, you know, if you really want it to work, you maybe have to sell them because there are cows that totally ignore them. Oh, I would agree with that. I would agree with fence records. I've seen that with barbed wire fence. I I have a picture of a bull. He knew he learned how to put his head against the post and he just push over brand new barbed wire fences and not get a single cut on them. Yeah, you have to sell them. Yeah, and you know, there's certain economics. I've I've questioned why some people participate. You said earlier, it takes three to five years to see the turnaround in the landscape with the soil health and those kinds of things. But, you know, there needs to be some financial aid and there needs to be a lot of educational components just because you can manage the grazing differently doesn't mean you're necessarily skilled to do that. You know, the learning curve I'm on with our own ranch is, you know, almost straight up with having not a lot of latitude and now I have a lot of latitude. So, you know, we've made some errors and, but you know, it's, it's an emerging technology and we all have a lot to work to really benefit from it. Bridger and Judith, do you guys have some thoughts about what you're, you know, most excited about what you're seeing starting to work? And like Temple said, you know, it's really important that this stuff works. And so I'm wondering if you're seeing some things that you're excited about. Yeah, I mean, like uh, on the the current uh, ranch and grazing lease that I'm managing, we're doing some um, beaver restoration and uh, wetland restoration project. And, you know, I just I think as we get more arid, um, as we have a, a more changing climate, I, I'm really intrigued to see this type of uh, beaver restoration um, and these wetland restoration projects kind of take hold and really maybe get some more funding and become a big thing. Because I think we have to think of the, the these Southwest climates and, and even as we go further North, I think as we move into the future is kind of the, those waterways are nature's sponge. And that's how we are really help kind of build that water cycle back up. One thing that I'm seeing that I found really exciting is the influx of women into ranching, yeah. perhaps that haven't, it hadn't been in their family. But when I went to the new cowgirl camp in the Pacific Northwest, I was so impressed that there were all these young women who just out of a passion for animals, out of curiosity, out of the desire to live this dream, just, you know, just kind of picked up their stakes and are, are doing this work. Um, I've got a question in from somebody who's joined us. Matt wanted to ask Temple and Judith. Judith, you had mentioned predation as part of a holistic system. Can you talk about how rangeland livestock operations might need to evolve to adapt to a landscape that includes the restoration of native carnivores like wolves and grizzly bears? Yeah, so just one example that comes to mind is when I was reporting in Chihuahua, Mexico on some ranches where they were working with bird conservation organizations to create habitat for threatened migratory grassland birds is one of the ranchers, his name is Alejandro Carrillo. And he talked about the importance of changing when the cows would calf in terms of when the calves would be protected by the taller grass. So he said that a lot of times the cycle of when they calf is according to tradition, how things have always been done rather than conditions on the ground. So that's one example. Well, our ranches are already changing it. I just have uh, been out driving in the countryside and I did a big drive 
Eastern Colorado. I saw lots of little calves. This was just two weeks ago. I always thought it was crazy to calve in the middle of the winter time. And they just did it for the market. So you'd have a bigger calf for fall sale. But you know, we have a lot of people moving away from that now calving when nature intended them to calve. We talked a little bit earlier about how just our depictions of ranchers and, and what we perceive of them. And I wonder if you can just kind of talk a little bit about why it is that we do really need to protect this way of life. What, what's the value of it? The cowboy culture can be romanticized, but we're, we're kind of, we're still doing it because there is a love for the land. And I, I definitely would say that in today's modern ranching world, uh, the people that are left as maybe curmudgeon and hard-headed as some people might think they are, they're either doing it because they're really, really stubborn or because they really, really do love the land. And some people don't always know how to, to manage in the best way possible, but they're, they're still out there trying their best. And I think that the general public, I, I think it's, it would be nice if there was more, oh, just more positive uh, conversation between ranchers and, and the general public and uh, just a more positive perception of ranchers moving forward. And hopefully that, that occurs through, through better management and educating consumers and, and the general public. You know, not to be too harsh on the farming industry, but it's, uh, you know, everybody uses the same fertilizer and there's three different tractor companies and they all plant the same wheat. And there's this monoculture of thought across the whole spectrum. And ranchers are, well, we're rugged individualists, not so much, you know, because of the landscape and, and the things we have to do. And that's, I think, our, our greatest value is the diversity of thinking that ranchers bring to the landscape. Unfortunately, the place where I went as a teenager, a lot of those ranching families, uh, well, those ranches don't exist anymore because those ranches were using uh, government land and the leases have been in question. Uh, so that, that's been really sad. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I figure the age I'm at now, I want to promote how we need, you know, ranching to uh, improve the land also as a source of food. You know, I drive a hundred miles of land and you can't put the houses on it. It's too far out. You can't grow crops on it. What do we do? Not raise food on that land? Let's raise food on that land and improve it at the same time. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.